The gospel lesson for the morning is John's great hymn of the Incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens every person, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But for all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of humans, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me from his fullness. We have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made God known. The word of the Lord. Thanks, <clears throat> the article I saw on Christmas Eve grabbed me by its title, The People Who Challenged My Atheism Most Were Drug Addicts and Prostitutes. Chris Arnade was a 16-year-old working on a custodial crew one summer, saving money for college, when he encountered a fellow worker named Preacher Man. Preacher Man would question me, Uh, What do you believe in? I would decline to engage, Arnate said, but he kept pressing me all summer long. Finally, I broke. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in a God. The preacher man's eyes narrowed. He pointed at me, Arnate says. He said, you're an atheist? Then you're going to go to hell and live a life of sin. Arnate eventually received a PhD in physics And then he worked on Wall Street for 20 years. You can decide if that qualifies for hell or not. (laughs) He lived a life devoted to rational thought and data. He finally left Wall Street not finding it satisfying enough and in a radical turn started working with and photographing homeless addicts in the South Bronx. When I first walked into the Bronx, Arnade said, I assumed that I would find there many who shared my cynical view of faith. If anyone seemed to be a perfect candidate for atheism, it was these addicts who see daily how unfair and unjust and evil the world can be. But none of them are. Rather, they are some of the strongest believers I have ever met. The first addict I met was a woman named Takesha. We talked for an hour before I took her picture. When we finished, I asked her how she wanted to be described. And she said without any 
pause as who I am, a prostitute, a mother of six, and a child of God. Sonia and Eric, homeless heroin addicts, have a picture of the Last Supper that moves with them. Uh, It has hung in an abandoned building, in a sewage-filled basement, and now leans against a pole in a small space on a bridge over an interstate where they are now staying. Sarah, 15 years on the street, wears a cross around her neck always. Michael, 30 years on the streets, carries a rosary in his pocket always. Our Nate observes, Takesha and the other homeless addicts are viewed by almost everybody in the whole world as losers. They have their faith because what they believe in doesn't judge them. Who am I to tell them what they're believing is irrational? Who am I to tell them that the one thing that gives them hope and allows them to find some beauty in this awful world is inconsistent? It would be cruel and pointless. In these last three years, I have been reminded that life is not rational and that everyone makes mistakes in biblical terms, we are all sinners. On the streets, these addicts with their daily battles and proximity to death have come to understand this viscerally. Many successful people don't. Our sense of entitlement and emotional distance has numbed our understanding of our fallibility. I look back at my 16-year-old self and see preacher man and his listeners differently. I look at the fragile woman praying and see a mother working a minimum wage custodial job trying to raise three kids alone. I look at the teenager fingering a small cross and see a young woman abused by a father addicted to whatever, trying to get a moment of peace. I see preacher man himself living in a beat-up shack without electricity, desperate to stay clean, desperate to make any sense of the world that has given him so little. They all found hope where they could. Earlier this year, at one of his weekly audiences, Pope Francis stopped in front of a woman whose tears just streaked her face. As Francis reached for her hand, she whispered something into the Pope's ear. Francis looked startled and stood back a bit and then turned toward the man next to the woman. The Pope embraced him and then drew the woman into the embrace as well. Then Francis placed his hand on the the man's head. The, The man's shoulders shook slightly. The Pope made a sign of the cross above them. And then he moved on. The man was weeping. The woman said to someone next to him, my husband has had brain tumors for the last four and a half years. They keep getting worse and worse. We just came for this, for his blessing, whatever it is, physical, emotional, or spiritual. These are all pictures of faith. But they're pictures that may be challenging to many of us whose lives, like Chris Arnade, are largely shaped by more rational thought and careful logic. How are we to know God? That's what John is trying to address in the first chapter of his gospel. How are we to know God? 
Rembrandt's painting, Holy Family, which is on your bulletin cover this morning, sets the nativity in the 17th century. The attire and the furnishings are entirely what one would find in a typical Dutch home in Rembrandt's day. Mary is seated with a well-thumbed Bible open in her left hand. Her right hand uh, is atop the cradle that safely keeps the sleeping baby Jesus. Mary's head is turned from the book to gaze upon the infant. Immediately behind her in a much fainter light, Joseph is at work on a piece of wood. How do we encounter and understand the Word of God? There's the Bible, the the book that Mary is reading as Jesus sleeps and Joseph works in the background. But Mary does not ponder the page alone. She also engages her heart by caring for her child, this word made flesh. Go too far one way or the other to the mind and the book or simply to the heart and the care and we will end up lost in distortion. There's a balance. Compared to the nativity stories of Matthew and Luke, John's opening words, as magnificent as they are, have a more distant and reflective and intellectual tone to them. But then John startles us. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. For John... Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, is known both in poetry, which echoes creation's promise, and in the presence as immediate as the last time you or I were afraid of the dark. For a presentation she had to do on darkness for a college class, a student located an old, never-used racquetball court only reached by going down this long set of stairs through this, these heavy doors, sealed off from the outside world, no natural light in at all. And so for the class, she led them down those stairs and through those heavy doors and into this room that no one knew was there, and then she turned off the lights. And they all sat and sat and sat in total darkness. After five minutes, which seemed like five hours, she finally lit a single match. Some of her fellow students stood in wonder. Others couldn't wait to get out of there. More than a few had tears running down their face. It was a great lesson in the impact of what such a little light can have, but it was also a lesson about the darkness. Darkness is powerful. We ignore it at our peril, but we must also never underestimate the light. For all the discernment and intellect that we can all deploy in our lives, still sometimes we are no better than a lost soul sitting in the dark yearning for light. There are other moments in life Using our intellect and discernment, superstition is sent packing by the word of God, cutting through all the shallowness and calling us to a deeper, more engaging place with God. To know God with depth is a gift. 
so too, though, is trusting a God who truly will be light in darkness. How do we know God? Alas, back to Chris Arnade's observation about how some of us lose touch with our own fallibility. It's too easy to conclude we know God because that's all on us. But it begins with God. How do we know God? Because the word made flesh has come to us, knows us, is reaching out to us. The writer Annie Dillard tells about a Christmas where his, her nephew Will was just on the verge of speech, 14 months old. Will commanded a wide range of shrieks and syllables, but no real words yet. And at times that really frustrated him. He was the only grandchild, mean he was in the company of adults all the time, adults who filled the air with so many words that he could not understand. Feeling left out of conversations, Will was about to start howling when somebody began singing. Dillard recounts, I don't know who started it, but in a second we all joined in in a spirited round of jingle bells, and Will shut right up. Uh, he stared at us with his mouth kind of open, mesmerized by the sight and sound of eight rather large people all making the same noise in his direction all at once. Whee! He yelled, delighted by what was going on, and the game was on. He means we three kings, one of them said, and so they sang that to him. Oh, he said when they were through. Oh, he means, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and then they sang that. Da! He said, and it was deck the halls. On it went with Will, 14 months old, directing from his high chair. Absolutely incredulous that we had so many words in us. Words that we could not, he could not say or understand, but words that he commanded nonetheless. Words that he brought into being by his own words, kind of haphazard as they were. Now, that's a wonderful moment. It's something about a little child who's in command of a bunch of adults. But beyond that, I think it also says something about our own poor efforts at speaking to God. Us from our high chairs, speaking to the God of the universe. And about how all our best words and our best thoughts might, might just sound like gibberish to God. And how it really doesn't matter anyway. Because God listens so intently to the entire grammar of our life. Our kindnesses and our cruelties, our hits and our misses, our doubts and our certainties, our superstitions and our half-baked hopes. All our anxieties. All our joys. With God, none of our rough words or phrases define us or hem us in because we are deep in conversation with the word made flesh who has come to us, who is still living among us every day, full of grace and truth and bringing that to us. Just like Mary in Rembrandt's masterpiece, we turn to the word of God in scripture and we study and we learn and we discern how to follow and we turn to Jesus, and by our experience of Jesus, we encounter love and grow in discipleship. 
It's both. The Jewish Talmud says, human beings always seek what they have lost. The actor Stephen Tobolowsky once said that the best acting advice he ever received was people don't need to see something clever. They need to experience something true. This morning in this text, John offers us the true word. In Hebrew, the term <clears throat> translated word, it actually means both word and deed. You see, the question can never be, how should we know God? It's also, what do we do about this word? It's what Dorothy Day talked about. It's no use saying that we were born 2,000 years too late to give room to Christ. Nor will those who live at the end of the world have been born too late. Christ is always with us, always asking for room in our hearts today. But now it is with the voice of our contemporaries that Christ speaks, with the eyes of store clerks and factory workers and children that Christ gazes, with the hands of office workers and slum dwellers and suburban housewives that Christ gives, it is with the feet of soldiers and tramps that Christ walks, and with the heart of anyone in need that Christ longs for shelter. And giving shelter or food to anyone who asks for it or needs it is giving it to Christ. God gives us this word made flesh, understood through mind and heart, and then gives us a task of becoming light in darkness ourselves. How are you light in darkness today? How are you light in darkness today? The promise of John's gospel is that for everyone who searches, every person who yearns to know God, if you are lost, God will find you. If you are in darkness, God is the light. If you need to find understanding, God provides a lived answer to your searching. Because the truest thing in all creation we can say to one another today and we can say to the world is what has come into being in, in the word was life and the life was the light of all people and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness never overcomes it. Amen.